Welcome to Dreaming of Home. I'm Gemma Rolls-Bentley, host of this new podcast series launched in conjunction with a group show I curated at the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art in New York City that springboards from Catherine Opie's artwork Self-Portrait Cutting. The photo, taken in 1993, depicts Kathy Opie from behind, a childlike scene depicting two lesbians holding hands next to a house under the clouds has been cut into her back. The exhibition features 20 of today's most groundbreaking artists, reflecting on the rapid and tumultuous shifts experienced by LGBTQIA communities in the 30 years since Kathy's photograph. In the upcoming episodes, I'm joined in the search for home by artists from the exhibition and Leslie Lohman Museum art workers as we explore queer people's hope for a happy, healthy future and the restrictions imposed by wider society on our dreams, our relationships, our families and our bodies. The series brings together intergenerational and international perspectives as we consider the themes of home on a global scale. Feel free to listen to this 30-minute podcast whilst you go about your day, wherever you feel at home. This conversation is the first in the series, which is very exciting, and it is my great pleasure to be joined today by two very impressive people that I've had the pleasure of getting to know whilst working on my group exhibition at the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art. Two people that I would now call friends and with whom I've shared many conversations about the joys and challenges of queer parenting, which is the topic that we're going to focus on today. Amy Chan Lindquist, Director of External Affairs at the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art, and Stamatina Gregory, Head Curator and Director of Exhibitions and Collections at the Museum. In the exhibition Dreaming of Home, we see a few artists picking up on the theme of family and parenting, which do not, of course, mean the same thing. For many queer and trans people, family won't involve children, but instead explores an array of nurturing intergenerational relationships and familial bonds that extend beyond the biological. But for others, having children is part of the journey and a key part of our home life. There's a couple of works in the show that I'm thinking of, particularly Nicole Eisenman's painting, it's untitled, it's from 2018, and it shows them on the bed at story time with their kids. It's a really beautiful, tender moment. And then Kaiser von Zippel, who has filled the museum window with um, a couple of pretty amazing and wild sculptures. There is a larger-than-life, silicon, futuristic lesbian breastfeeding her babies in the window and other babies. And the sculptures are called Covered in Me and Milky Loop. Um, And so the topic of queer parenting is very much present in the exhibition And so it made sense as a really good first uh, podcast theme. So I'd love to just kick off by inviting uh, you in, Amy and Stamatina, to just, if you could introduce your relationship to the topic of queer parenting. And can you also give us your pronouns? I use she, her. So uh, Stamatina, do you want to kick off? Yeah, I can. Thank you, Gemma. Um, I'm Stamatina. My pronouns are they, them. She, her is also okay, but I love they, them. Um, queer parenting. So when you, you know, shared some of the questions you were thinking about asking, I was like, oh, on the one hand, I have a, like a theoretical relationship to queer parenting as an idea, as this massive and transformative project that has incredible potential in thinking about how we, as a society, raise children right? As a whole. Um, 
how we think about what positions are naturalized, how these positions affect policy, what generations of people might refuse to accept as the children of queer people in terms of policy. The notion that parenting as an out queer person or a queer family is potentially so powerful, like such a reframing of the status quo that like, of course, conservative governments are like creating specifically instrumental policy to attempt to undo it. Right. And yet my relationship to it is totally quotidian. I'm doing it. Amy's doing it. You're doing it. (laughs) So many people I know are doing it. I know people in queer relationships who are absolutely utterly patriarchal in their adherence to their homonormative nuclear family. I know queer families that are completely radical. Um, This kind of variation was something that I never would have imagined um, before I started being part of queer parenting community. I also think about it as a space of privilege, too, which I thank you for touching on. Thank you, Stamatina. Yes, totally agree. It is a space of privilege. And I think it's really important to remember that. And it's important to acknowledge and say that as well. Um, Amy. Hi. Um, my pronouns are she, her. And yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so interesting, actually, also to, to, that this idea of privilege in being a parent as this sort of general oeuvre of like, we are number one, we are privileged to be parents in this moment and how also that is, there is a a tension and a precarity also right now in queer community of what that can potentially mean politically. Um, But also I think that um, to be a parent in this world is, is, is also just a, and, and thinking sort of of the bigger sort of schematics about the, the exhibition itself and like this idea of home and belonging and affirmation and joy. These are all parts and trauma and fear. And these are all parts of this sort of like natural human connections that are all part of being a person in this world and then also <clears throat> perpetuating that as um, these things that we we hope to you know hold and 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 keep for our children right and so I think that it's like it's so much to navigate um, and also so wonderful and challenging I totally agree. It is so much to navigate. And I think there are so many layers to this topic as well, Mm. which is why I wanted to begin by asking, you know, what it means to you both. Because I think as well, just even talking about our queer families, of course, that's helpful context for our listeners. But I also think it's really important in terms of visibility, just to give airtime to different queer families and different family structures. Because I really remember when I was thinking of starting a family, I didn't, I was really aware that I didn't have any kind of blueprint to follow. And I didn't really know where to look to find relevant examples. You know, I remember Stonewall had done a special issue of a magazine about lesbians starting families um and it was it was really helpful it and that was but that was literally all we had and I I went about a 
kind of weird survey where someone would say, oh, I know some lesbian mums. I'd say, great, can I have their number? And I just would start like, asking people how they'd done it because I really wanted that, like just some ideas really and some information about how, how to do that. So I think it's, yeah, just really important to talk about our various families and to give visibility to, to them. For me, I have a wife, I have two children um, that I gave birth to that we conceived with an anonymous sperm donor. We have two cats, traditionally lesbian in that respect. Um, but also my house, my home is full of people and full of queer people. And, you know, I kind of see myself as a queer mum beyond the children I gave birth to. We have younger people in our house all the time who are coming around for help with things or I get people involved with projects I'm working on and I feel really lucky that we can have a, ha a home full of love and I think that's how a lot of people build a queer family as well it's about chosen family um, so you know that's a really important part for me but in terms of actual queer parenting I did have a look at some data because I just was interested to know what the situation is in the US the the most recent data I could find was from 2019 but that data told me that between 2 million and 3.7 million children under age 18 have at least one LGBTQ plus parent and that was 2019 and I know at the rate that my friends are having gabies those numbers are much bigger <laughs> by now um, but I thought that was really interesting and of course the data then went on to say of course that could be people being raised by a single LGBTQIA plus parent or a different sex couple where one parent identifies as bisexual or it might be two same-sex parents there I'm sure I know multiple parent families as well you know there's lots of different versions of what that looks like um, but those sounded like pretty big numbers to me and it um, the data also said that there was an estimated 29% of LGBTQIA plus adults raising a child under the age of 18 which also sounded like a pretty big number wow I had no idea thank you for sharing that I also think that this is so um, this is so indicative of um, the way that we're also thinking about queer community and the fluidity in which we also think about um, family, right, or or our relationships or our relationships with one another, and how that inclusion of the more into that community into our homes. Uh, Gemma, just as you were talking, it's, it's like feeling affirmed with all the parts of being queer, right? And it's not binary. It's not the sort of straight pathway of like, you, you have two moms or you have two dads, right? There's, there's so many iterations now in, in which we are being inclusive of what it means to be a queer parent too. So I think, it, that expansiveness is something that is a big part of also the sort of, and also the, the inclusion of like feeling like you are able to be, we also live in like a metropolitan sort of bubble too, in a way you being in London, Stamatian and I being in New York, we have the opportunity to like really be with other families who are expansive with their ideas of, 
queerness in the world, um, which is a gift and, again, a privilege. Yeah, it really is. And actually, Amy, I would love you on that topic to maybe share a little bit. You mentioned to me the other day about neighbors that you have who are an elderly gay couple and are a really important part of your children's life. And that I feel like that intergenerational element is just so critical. And I have the same. I have an elderly gay friend who's an important part of my children's lives. And that's someone who didn't have his own children, like lots of older queer people. And the connections that, you know, we bring through those relationships are so valuable. Um, and I, I know I told you this story the other day, but the first time we took our kids to his house, he made us ring the doorbell of everybody in his building so that everyone could see these children that were part of his extended family because he'd never had children in his home before and it was just such a big deal to him. And, yeah, so I wonder if you could share a little bit about that experience of you, that you have. Yeah, I, I think that it's um, it's also important to... Um, it's like this sort of normalization of like this intergenerational um, queerness, right? Like, so that it's not just like, oh, my friends have queer parents and we are like uh, among, again, among a bubble that is just as such, right? It, it extends beyond that. So having neighbors who, you know, have been living in this, old New York apartment building for, you know, 40 some odd years, one being like a New York firefighter and the other one an opera singer, and them being a part of our family is this really beautiful and special network that extends beyond their school, which we are, again, I'm really lucky to go to a progressive public school where you know, I think 50, over 50% of the administration and the teachers identify as LB, LGBTQIA+. Um, that's really special. And it's really important to see all the forms of queerness. Mm -hmm. And and again, that that the beauty in that. It's really, and, and the pride that everybody feels from being able to sit um, in with with each other and and um, yeah, feels really special. And Stamatina, you know, I'd love to hear more about your experience of queer parenting as well, because I was trying to kind of come up with a little summary of my experience, you know, and I was thinking about the joy and gratitude that I have that I'm even able to have children and this family. But there's also quite a lot of frustration that I have in there. You know, there was a lot of challenges that we faced around fertility treatment, lack of access, support, financial support. And, and I am constantly, I think, disappointed and frustrated by the lack of awareness around queer families and queer parenting. You know, when I go to the uh, pharmacy and I'll say, oh, my wife, and they'll say, you're who? And oh, I go to the GP and they say, oh, we spoke to the mum. And I'm like, oh, yeah, but that wasn't me. I'm the other mum. And they're like, oh, you know, and, and people, that I, and I think a lot of that comes out of the lack of visibility that we see. Um, but, you know, what's your experience with that, Stamatina? I didn't think about not having a child growing, you know, 
Growing up, I didn't really envision myself ever wanting to conceive or starting a family. And it might have been nascent queerness expressing itself and not seeing a model. But it also came out of a, um, a history of illness and long courses of chemotherapy and radiation that made me assume that I would never conceive. And so coupled with a desire to, you know, I also had the privilege of growing up in New York, but in a fairly provincial neighborhood in order to, you know, kind of grow up and leave and think about putting together a life that was interesting, that involved contemporary art and culture. Um, for me, family didn't seem to figure into that. And it was truly only when I was in my 30s and suddenly and almost everything in my life was going particularly terribly. Um, it was around the time of the financial crisis also, or the aftermath of the financial crisis. And um, I was in a kind of, you know, I was in a place where very little seemed to be working, although I had, you know, some material means. My father had just passed away, which seemed like the catalyst. And I decided I would like to have a baby. And at the time, I was in a heterosexual relationship. And it allowed me to leapfrog over every bullshit hurdle that many other queer friends have gone through, right? Insurance not covering your fertility, partner adoption, like all of the hurdles and like financial issues and indignities that queer people have to go through. I did not, um, obviously. That brought its own complications and negotiations, right? And I'm parenting with someone who is not queer. So it's kind of the opposite experience, like at the parent-teacher meetings or whatever, it might appear that we look like just another heteronormative couple sitting in the small seats, listening to teachers talk about planned curriculum. Actually, my child is 12, so the seats are no longer small and everything is on Zoom anyway, but you get the point. <laughs> um, you know, in so, in so many ways, being queer and being non-binary can be invisible. Um, and sometimes it's that lack of visibility that can also feel like it needs to be recognized, I think, because we have to create community for one another, right? Um, at the same time, having grown up with homophobia being like part of the air that I breathed, like so many of us, I'm so grateful to have the privilege of watching my child grow up in an environment that's so different. And yes, Amy, you know, we live in the bubbles of New York and London, right? But to me, it still feels extraordinary. Um, he could honestly care less about whatever either of his parents are doing. He knows identities are fluid and shifting. He has gay and lesbian and trans friends and family. Um, friends of ours who have children that are older than him, many of them are trans. And although he's an only child, it's almost 
that he has an extended family of both straight and queer folks in his life um, that feel as close as siblings, right? And I might be projecting onto my child, but I feel like I can see a piece in his soul about being surrounded by difference and by love. Which is so beautiful. And really, I mean, Amy and I are welling up. This, you know, this is just, it's, it's kind of just so hopeful, I think, to hear that kind of experience. Um, I'm interested in what you were saying, Stamatina, about, you know, that position that you were in that was one of privilege, but also was very complicated because of, you know, the erasure of your identity. Um, how did you find it? And Amy, feel free to speak to this point, this question as well. You know, how did you find it within the queer community or how do you find it within the queer community um, being a parent? Because I was so overwhelmed by the love and support I received from friends within the queer community. We were some of the first to have a baby. And um, in fact, I always feel a bit bad because our first baby was just inundated with gifts. By the second one, the novelty had worn off a little bit. But, you know, we were getting gifts from queers that I didn't even really know that well because people were just so excited that a baby was entering this community. Um, but then I did also have a few experiences where people found it difficult that we had decided to procreate. You know, I think politically they perhaps felt like that challenged something or there was a perhaps an edge of a risk of assimilation there, which is definitely, you know, not my experience and is something, you know, I find kind of challenging because actually being in it, being a queer parent, I feel like it's extremely radical. And, you know, like I said, being at the GP, having to come out like every time I make an appointment like that or at school making sure the nursery has got inclusive literature it's like constant labor um you know and it it is definitely a scary experience as well because suddenly you're responsible for small human beings um but I also understand why it's challenging for a lot of people and particularly I think for a lot of older queers the idea of children being in the mix was always, you know, presented as mutually exclusive um, from their queerness. So I wonder, you know, um, Stamatine, if you could speak to that and Amy too, just ab about your experience within the community. In some ways, I did feel that conceiving a child and conceiving a child in a heteronormative way in a way I almost felt like although I know that this is the experience of an entire other generation of elders also right we have elders for whom you know parenting was not only impossible but unthinkable you know you like really eloquently laid out like a position that so much of the community shares and a resistance to heteronormative time, to the politics of social reproduction, to the harmful politics of the nuclear family, right? I mean, returning to the show for a minute, there's, there's a way in which Kathy's photograph of the two stick figures 
you know, seared itself into my mind the first time I saw it. Because everything is a double-edged sword also. To even conceive of the nuclear family in a way that it's been kind of packaged and sold to the 20th century is a destructive one ultimately, especially in the context of the, you know, the life-saving force that is queer community, right? And that is collective society in general. And so for me, it almost felt like a capitulation in some ways, which is so hard to say. Um, And there's also such a difficulty in speaking about, you know, family in terms of larger politics um, within communities that have never thought about them that way, right? So, but we also have to think about generations of elders, generations of lesbians in particular, that had children, that conceived of children heteronormatively, and that recognized their identity later in life, and that went through profound negotiations. Some of them lost their children, right? And, you know, for them, that was, you know, that was a pain that was seared into the body also. I feel really lucky that the bulk of my everyday support comes from my immediate family, right? That very kind of crucible that I once felt so oppressive, so oppressed growing up in. I grew up in an immigrant family who, for whom there were, you know, many issues that they were on the left on, right? But they were very socially conservative. And I'm very lucky to have a mom that has radically grown from the ways in which she was raised and the community that she was surrounded with during her own time as a parent and is now like totally ride or die, not only for me, but for any of my queer friends' children. Love that. That's all, That's been my experience as well. And I love that hearing queer people talking about the journey that they've taken their parents on as well. And I, yeah, I think children are always going to be a helpful part in that I think as well Mm -hmm. that's something I was aware of yeah and I and I also think I mean just in in sort of speaking in general terms too parenting is so much about modeling right we're modeling the sort of um behaviors and the 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 kindness and the generosity and the empathy that we hope to, that our children absorb. And so by surrounding ourselves and, and queer community, I think is very good at doing this in terms of like, just like sort of surrounding ourselves with this like warm glow of, of, of queer love. Um, it's, it's wonderful. And, and then there are times that it's very, you know, um, that there are still these, generational sort of societal things, even within queer community, that people are contending with. Um, Stamatina, to your point, um, you know, historically too, like we're all we're all navigating through all of that. And and again, I, I feel like we're in we're also 
again, in this very precarious moment in the world where, it, especially I feel like in the United States, where it's so polarizing um, that it feels very, I, I feel very lucky to be in this space that I'm in to, to feel that warm embrace of community. And I know that that is, again, something that is very much something that um, I'm grateful for because it's not the case mm -hmm. everywhere, certainly. And Gemma, to, to your point in, in your series, really thinking through home and belonging, what that means culturally in all iterations too, and just expanding on that. But yeah, it, it just feels important to have these conversations actually mm -hmm. right now. I totally agree. And, you know, I'm hearing in both of your stories so much joy and, you know, really inspiring kind of anecdotes and moments in how you're approaching this. And this, I think it's actually interesting. It's something that has come up for me, you know, this idea that queer parents are perhaps leading the way in, in, you know, some respect, um, whether it's parenting or the, the domestic space or outlook or community or social responsibility. But that is something I remember, um, like kind of early on when we had kids, had quite a few female friends who had husbands saying things to me like, oh God, I wish I had a wife. And the implication being instead of this shit husband. And, and I was a little bit like, that's that's kind of a cop out. Your husband could could be doing all the things that my wife is doing, but actually, it's not as straightforward as that at all because they, you know, were bogged down in these the baggage of you know traditions and heteronormative structures that are extremely restrictive. And I am really aware that our family framework gives us quite a lot of freedom, actually. And I think queerness as an approach, and Stamatina, you said at the very beginning, you know, thinking about the politics of this, it's like, what can we be teaching the rest of the world? Or what can queer parents be doing to lead the way? Because I, I see a lot of great stuff there to be shared with everybody else. Yeah, well, you know, sort of thinking, and I think about this of, of with artists too, being at the forefront, queer artists, being at the forefront of cultural shifts. You know, we are, we are doing that in a way that is modeling, again, this modeling and, and the, the sort of in real time, you know, parenting and being, Gemma, I think you said something that was, you were, not just a mother, but it's, it's to your children, but to a, a greater community. And that sort of nurturing of relationship, that sort of nurturing is going to extend beyond the two children that you have, right? Um, because there is so much joy and love to bring when you continue to balloon out that love. And it's really important. I am glad that love is getting so much focus in this because I really think that's what we, that's what the quiz have to give. 
Um, also, I, I think it's interesting to just take a minute to reflect on, you've both kind of mentioned like the time that we're having this conversation in. You know, I've been in the US now for a couple of weeks and every time I turn on the news, they're talking about this, I can't, don't remember what they're called, the parents organization that started in Florida and is now got representatives in every state and they are coming for the schools, the kids, but also we're seeing it in Italy. Queer parents have just had their rights stripped away under the new Italian government's conservative policies. In the UK, we we have it, you know, in my local neighbourhood. Whenever there's a drag queen story hour, people come out with their pitchforks. And the language, it's... The homophobia is very much... Tar- homophobia and transphobia is targeted very much at kids. And there is in a similar way that it was, you know, in the 80s. You know, in the UK, we had Section 28, which was a law brought in by Margaret Thatcher's government that meant teachers were not allowed to talk about um, queer gayness. Um, And as a result, children's suicide rates were very high. Um, But I think, you know, thinking about this time and, and this moment, like, it, it is scary and we kind of feel like there's a lot of com- language around grooming and, and, you know, and it's it's children get brought into this a lot. And it's something I feel really aware of as a queer parent. So I think, you know, as we're sort of wrapping this up, just thinking about this this moment that we're in feels very scary. Like, what are your reflections on that? What do you think we need to be doing more of? Like, what do we take into the future? What can be, what, what can be giving us hope and power and solidarity? Stamatina. I mean, in some ways it can feel hopeless, right? Um, but I think it's also important to remember in 1977, which is the year I was born, um, there was a really similar political campaign happening in Florida. Anita Bryant um, began the Save Our Children campaign. Um, Essentially, you know, talking about homosexuals not being able to reproduce, so they have to recruit. It was also tied in, notably, with the ERA, um, which I think was, you know, proposed and then voted down in that same year, um, in part because of the Save Our Children campaign. So the child, I think even part of it was, um, you know, the idea that children might even be able to change genders was part of the litany of horrors that Save Our Children and Anita Bryant used to terrify people into voting to roll back people's civil rights, right? They were really focused on these issues of reproduction and the child as a figure, not the child ever as a human being, but the child as a figure, a white figure, a heterosexual, nascent heterosexual figure, not sexual, but heterosexual, and the child of heterosexuals, right, is somehow like a figure that's in danger 
of like being annihilated um, or some other kind of preposterous thing. And so, so much of this feels like history repeating itself in that way. I think that one of the key differences is, of course, that people live in an echo chamber. We don't all watch the same news anymore. Um, the, the religious right has honed its tactics <laughs> over the following half century. Um, it really kind of underlies this feeling that we're, we inhabit these kind of precious spaces of love and acceptance. And also, just really think about like the evolution of the world as a whole and our safety and our children's safety within it. And the reality, of course, is that for many queer people, the journey to parenting is not straightforward. And by the time you get there, the amount of love, as this conversation has really demonstrated, that we have to give to our kids and the other people around us and the people in our community is vast. And really, that's what we should be leaning into. One of the things I'm doing on this podcast is asking all of our guests what your dream of home looks like. So, um, Amy, do you want to yeah, I've, I've been thinking about this and, and um, you know, it's so cliche to say this, but like our joy, our love is that resistance to that, um, to what's happening. And, and as small as it sounds, it, it is. And so we have to continue to celebrate that. But <clears throat> I think really when I think of home is really the place of belonging and feeling affirmed mm. as a parent, as a, as a human being, my children to feel affirmed and belong um, and to feel loved and accepted as who they are. Um, and that's, that's my home. That's a- my amen. Place. I'll come live there with you. <laughs> Stamatina, what's your dream of home? I kept thinking about this in the context of New York City and how the spaces where we live can feel like they determine our relationships rather than the other way around. Um, But, you know, to me, although not perfect, this kind of precious space of New York feels like home. Because in so many parts of it, there is a kind of freedom to just be. As long as you are with your folks, or you are in a position to find them, to find your people. I mean, this is something that, yeah, I feel like on some level, queer people here, you know, fighting to preserve. I love that. Well, you are both definitely my folks, and I love being in this city with you. Stamatina and Amy, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and for this gorgeous conversation. Gemma, we're so happy that you're here with us and we had we were able to spend this time with you and talking about home and love and joy and all the things. 
all the things. Thank you. Grateful for this space and for Amy, the other parent of Elizabeth. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, respect to both of you. Thank you so much for joining me in this gorgeous conversation. Our next podcast episode features Catherine Opie. Check back in a couple of weeks for it being released. This episode is brought to you by the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art. Dreaming of Home is on view September 7th till January 7th, 2024. Learn more about the show at lesliloman.org. Join us for the next episode in this series where we ask, where can we feel at home? In our skin, in each other's embrace, amongst our chosen families? Where are our queer and trans bodies safe, housed and free to be themselves? I'm Gemma Rolls-Bentley and this is Dreaming of Home. The show music is Fantasy Island Obsession, written and performed by friend of the podcast, Tom Rasmussen, featuring Kai Isaiah Jamal.